All right. Well, good morning. So every time that, um, that I get the privilege of bringing the word, I think that um, what you're going to hear is basically the short version of what I've been preaching to myself as I prepare for a message. And I think as I've talked to Jay and other friends who, who preach regularly, I can say that that seems to be the, the consensus, is that anytime we come with anything, uh, it, it's something that we've worked through in a pretty deep and meaningful way. And the subject matter of what I'm going to talk about this morning is especially um, personal, because this is a message that I've been preaching to myself for a very long time, probably longer than any other single message that I have ever preached myself. And it has to do with the body of Christ. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and the theme of this message, and I brought, I brought my uh, placard from, from home here again. I've brought it before, but the theme of the message is better together. We, we have this over one of our fireplaces at home. We have a boat that's called Better Together. We have, you know, hashtags on Instagram for our family that are better together. It's become a mantra for our family. It's become what we believe is the way that God has called us to live. And I think that when we come to the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's exactly the picture of the body that he describes. And so the struggle, the, the challenge, I suppose, for me this morning is how do I talk about this thing that I've been preaching to myself for probably a decade and a half, and how do I, how do I say that in a concise way so that you all can get out of here on time? <laughs> because last service I went for about an hour and a half, just to let you know. No, just kidding. So, but I will try, to, I will try to do that. But the reality is, is that this is at the core of how we're supposed to live. This is at the core of what we're supposed to value. That God didn't put us on this earth so that we could live lives completely independently. We rely on him, and together as the church, we rely on him. Christ is the head, and we're the members of the body. And so, as we, as we dive into the word this morning, as we talk about what Paul says to the, to the church at Corinth, um, I want to keep in mind the fact that we need the body, and the body needs us. It's, it's important for us to re- recognize that all the time, is that we need the body, and the body needs us. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse number 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of one body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If we were all a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unrepresentable parts are treated with greatest modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to get into your word this morning. We thank you for the way that every word, God, is, is so um, appropriate for our life today. God, we thank you for the gifts that are represented in this room, that are represented in our body. And God, I pray that as we leave, we would remember, God, that we need the body, that the body needs us, and God, that you have a mission that we're all on. And so be with us here now. Be faithful to speak with us now. For your son's sake, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning, uh, some of you were here for the 9 o'clock service, and it was the return of the choir, which I was very excited for. I like the choir a lot. My wife sings in the choir, and, and, um, and I think whenever I hear the choir sing, it's almost like a representation of this passage kind of like lived out in front of us. Because I think in terms of every, every person singing together, everybody has a different range, a different part. Um, you could take one voice on its own, and it's lovely. It's fine. Um, and you could even take a group of voices, and if they were all singing the same thing, singing in unison, that would be nice too. But that's not what a choir does. That's not what the band does. It would, it, it's, it, it, I, I picked on Jenny earlier, and I'm going to do it again now. She's not here. But Jenny sings soprano. You've probably heard her high, beautiful voice in the choir. But if it was a choir full of Jennies, oh my goodness, can you imagine listening to a room full of Jennies for any amount of time? Yeah, 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 probably. <laughs> I mean, it would be, it, it, it would be unsustainable. It would be, it's like, it's like, that, that would be, that would be nice for a few seconds, but that's about it. But the beautiful part of the choir is that you have the different sections, and you've got the organ, and you've got the piano, and it all supplements and complements the different parts that each other are singing. And then you have this beautiful voice that comes out through, the, you know, over the top. And it's really nice. And it's the same way in the band, and it's the same way in any music that we listen to. If everybody was just playing, you know, just gung-ho through every song, it would not be very palatable to listen to. And so it was nice this morning to have the choir back. Um, and I think that it's interesting that sometimes, uh, just, like, just like with the band, just like with the choir, sometimes you're standing right next to somebody that's singing or playing something very different than what you're playing. But they're complementary. They sound beautiful when they're together. Alone, they don't. It's just a nice illustration, I think, of this passage, of how the body is meant to, to interact 
and how the body is meant to work together. In my professional life, I have a saying that I use a lot, and that's the most people doing the best work. It's the tagline on my LinkedIn page. If you're following me on LinkedIn, you'll see the most people doing the best work, because I think that that's a concise way. I've worded it very uh, intentionally, and I think that it's a very concise way of saying that it's important to have as many people as possible represented, and it's important to do the best thing that those people can do when they're together. And so I'm going to break that down a little bit, first starting with the most people. As a church, we've articulated some core values in the past uh, year, year and a half. And those three core values, I thought about, I thought about surveying the room and asking if people could identify what those three were, but I'm not going to do that because I don't think that we've done as good a job as we could at articulating them that three things would come up. But here they are, in case you don't know. The first is that we're a church where not only do people matter, but where every person matters. Second of all, that we're, we are a church where we're focused on the community, specifically the community outside of these walls. And third, we're a church that places a very high value on education, specifically teaching the Word of God. And so as we talk about the different jobs that different members of the body have, those are the things that we're hoping to accomplish as a church. And that's not just this church. That's specifically how we articulate it. But really, that's what we should be doing as Christians. We should be about others. And not just about others generically, but others specifically. We should be about the person that lives next door. We should be about the person in the next office. We should be about the person who we see on a regular basis. And we should know those people, and we should make God known to those people. So I've mentioned before the difference that simply saying people matter and every person matters is that every person is unique. And that's what Paul's getting at in this illustration of the body, is that everybody is unique. No two people are created to do the exact same thing. No two people are equipped, and no two people look the same. Um, Sometimes that's tough. Sometimes it means that we rub each other the wrong way because we go about different, you know, we go about things very differently. But that's the beauty of the body, is that God has put each one of us on this earth to reach somebody and to do something that he didn't put anybody else on this earth to reach or to do. We have to remember that in all that we do. I think that in... In any organization, when we talk about maximum success, we have to realize that everybody has to be on board board and everybody has to be invested. And that doesn't just go for the current players. That there are people that are not yet on board, that are not yet a part of our fellowship here, that are not yet a part of our daily lives, that have a lot to bring to the table that we're missing out on if they're not there. We're missing out on things because we're missing the people that bring those things to the table. That's the necessity of every part of the body being an active part of the body. This is a truth that we see all around us. It's not just in the church world. It's not just in the business world. But I believe that all truth is God's truth. So if it works one place because God says it's true, it's going to work everywhere because God says it's true. It's, it's how he designed us. And as we come into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see 
last week, as Chris was talking about the different gifts and the different parts that uh, everybody plays, now we have this illustration of the body. It's almost like you couldn't come up with a better analogy to describe this than, than what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. And so I think that we have to remember, again, that we all do things a little bit differently, and we all come at things with a different perspective, and that that's okay. I didn't say this in the first service, um, but it comes out of a conversation I had between the services, and that's that I think it's important, and, and I haven't thought a whole lot through this, so if you disagree with me, you know, keep your comments to yourselves. <laughs> Just kidding. Say, tell me afterwards. But I think that oftentimes we don't do a good job of assuming good intentions of other people. I think that we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions and other people by their actions. Would you agree with that? And I think that sometimes we ascribe intentions on people where it's not appropriate. And sometimes we ascribe intentions on people's behavior that's based on our worldview and not theirs. And I think that there's a lot of harm that comes from that. And I'm being careful to say that how I'm saying it because I think that people with a non-Christian worldview certainly also bring a lot of value because all truth is God's truth. But I think that it's true because God says it's true. And I think that when we shut ourselves out to other opinions, that we're doing ourselves a disservice. God has put everybody on this planet and has given everybody unique life experiences, unique perspective, unique gifts and talents, um, different abilities, and he's given us those things for a reason. And the reason that we all exist, by the way, has not changed. The reason that we all exist is to know God and to make him known. The reason, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That doesn't just go for Christians, by the way. And I think that as Christians, our job is to help the world around us. I've said it before, and I'm going to say it a bunch more times. Our job as Christians is to help people around us form a more accurate picture of who God really is. Because when God is seen for who he is, he's irresistible. That's what the body working together, everybody playing their part, and everybody doing what God created them to do, gets us. It gets an accurate picture of God. And that when pieces of the body are missing, we see an incomplete picture. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says, if somebody says, because I'm not a hand or because I'm not a foot, I'm no longer a part of the body, it doesn't mean you're not a part of the body. It just means that that part of the body doesn't work. That part of the body is not doing what it's supposed to do. And for somebody to look at somebody else and say, you're not a part of the body, that also doesn't actually do anything. All it does is it makes the body suffer. It makes the body not work as it's designed. So we exist to help others form a more accurate picture of who God is. How many of you have ever heard of the illustration or the parable of the blind man or the blind men and the elephant? If you haven't, here's how it goes. The story goes that there's an elephant in the room for some reason, and there's six blind men. And the first blind man, he puts out his hand and touches the side of the elephant, and he says, "How smooth! An elephant is like a wall." The second blind man put out his hand and touched the trunk of the elephant and says, How round! An elephant is like a snake. The third blind man put out his hand and touched the tusk of the elephant. How sharp! An elephant is like a spear. The fourth man put out his hand and touched the leg of the elephant. How tall! An elephant is like a tree. 
The fifth man reached out and his hand and touched the ear of the elephant. How wide an elephant is like a fan. And the sixth blind man put out his hand and touched the tail of the elephant and said, how thin an elephant is like a rope. So here's the way that this analogy usually goes. It's usually used to describe different worldviews and different religions and says that everybody understands a different aspect of, of who God is. And so how arrogant would it be to say that you understand who God is when you're just a blind man, you're reaching out and you're groping and you're finding a part of who God is, but that there's really a lot of other things that you're not seeing. Um, and this analogy falls apart pretty quickly. And here's how it falls apart. And I think this is key for us as Christians, and this is key as we look at the body of Christ. First of all, there's a philosopher named Leslie Newbigin who says this. In the famous story of the blind men and the elephant, the real point of the story is, consist- is constantly overlooked. The story is told from the point of view of a king and his courtiers who are not blind but can see that the blind men are unable to grasp the full reality of the elephant and are only able to get a part of it. The story is constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmations of the great religions, to suggest that they learn humility and recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But of course, the real point of the story is exactly the opposite. If the king were also blind, there would be no story. What this means then is that there is an appearance of humility and a protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is, in fact, an arrogant claim with the kind of knowledge which is superior that you have just said no religion has. Tim Keller further explains how this falls apart when he says this. To say I don't know which religion is true is an act of humility. To say none of the religions have truth, no one can be sure there's a God is is actually to assume you have the kind of knowledge you just said no other person has, no other religion has. How dare you? See, it's kind of arrogant thing to say that nobody can know the truth because it's a universal truth claim. To say nobody can make universal truth claims, that is in itself a universal truth claim. Nobody can see the whole truth. You couldn't know that unless you see the whole truth. And therefore, you're doing the very thing that you say religious people shouldn't do. Now, it's a nice analogy. And like I said, it's often used to speak of different world religions. But I think there's another aspect that gets to the heart of the passage that we're talking about this morning. Because God is in the business of making himself known. We're not supposed to just stumble blindly through life and be satisfied with a partial picture of God. Because God speaks. Greg Kugel writes this, even though the men are blind, the elephant isn't necessarily mute. This is a factor the illustration doesn't allow for. What if the elephant speaks? The claim of Christianity is that man doesn't learn about God by groping. Instead, discovery is through God's own self-disclosure. He is not passive and silent, leaving us to get about his nature. God tells us what he's like and what he wants. If God speaks, this changes everything. All contrary opinions are silenced. All conjectures are put to rest. God has made himself known. And so 
We are his body. Every member of the body shares a vital but incomplete part in God being seen for who he really is. That's why we need the most people. That's the first half of the most people in the most people doing the best work. The second part is doing the best work. And this part is a little, um, a little more ambiguous. And here's why. Because it's one thing to work hard and get something done, but it's quite different to make sure that that something is the right thing in the first place. There's a man named Peter Drucker who's described as the founder of modern management. If you've ever read any of his, of his stuff, um, it's very long <laughs> and very wordy. But he is the founder, so to speak, of modern management. And this is what he says. He says that nothing is less productive than to make more efficient what should not be done at all. Think about that. We get really good at doing a lot of things, but at the end of the day... We get really good at doing a lot of things that don't necessarily need to be done at all. We spend a lot of time and a lot of energy doing things that don't matter in the grand scheme of things. And unfortunately, um, Christians are not exempt from that. There are a lot of church politics that are done really well that don't matter. There are a lot of uh, a lot of ways that we spend our free time, things that we do at home, things that we encourage even other people to do. And we get really good at doing those things that don't matter. And we convince ourselves that being busy is the same thing as being productive. And that's not true. Somewhere along the line, and I don't think it was too long ago, unless, I mean, maybe some of you could give me a better perspective. But in the time that I've been uh, alive, it seems like busyness has become glorified more and more, especially in the last couple of decades. That you ask somebody, how was your week? How was your summer? How was this or that? And they answer, oh, so busy. And it's almost like, oh, well, good for that person. Man, they were busy. Good for them. I'm sure that was a very important uh, way that they spent their time this summer. And we just kind of assume that. We just glorify busyness. Um, I've done it. We've all done it. But as I mentioned, this is the topic that I've been preaching to myself for a very long time. And one of the things that I've stopped answering when anybody asks, if any of you ever asked me, how was your week? And I say busy, just slap me across the face because I, will, I promise you, I'm not going to say that because it makes me think what was I actually doing? And a lot of times, if I'm honest, what I was actually spending my time on, and I might have been really good at it, didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Last night, for instance, I couldn't sleep. I was up uh, most of the night. Mostly I was thinking about the next part of this sermon, which is going to be really uncomfortable. Um, just a spoiler alert. And I, I just couldn't sleep. I was lying awake in bed. I was talking to Melissa. I was like, oh, honey, I'm gonna, here's what I'm going to say and this and that. And she fell asleep, so I guess, you know, it wasn't that uh, interesting to her. Hopefully nobody falls asleep here. But eventually I just gave up. And I, I, I fell asleep for a couple of hours, and then I woke back up. And I thought, man, I can't sleep. I'm going to go over my sermon notes and figure out 
how to, how to be more concise with what I'm talking about, which is ironic that I'm explaining that process, but whatever. So I got up, and I went through my notes, and then when I was done, I did what a lot of us tend to do when we have a lot of time on our hands, is I uh, went ahead and opened up Facebook. And I thought, all right, let's see what, um, what useful information Facebook has for me this evening at 3 in the morning. And here's the cool thing. There, there were three things that happened in the middle of the night last night that pertain to what I'm talking about right now that I think didn't happen by accident. So the first thing was that a friend of mine who's a pastor in the Midwest shared a quote from a pastor named Steve Lawson. And Steve Lawson said this in the, in the quote that was shared. He said, there's two types of preachers. Preachers who preach the Bible and preachers who should resign. And that brought me a great deal of comfort because of the next part of the sermon that I said was going to be uncomfortable because sometimes the word of God is uncomfortable. Um, The next thing that happened is I kept scrolling and I came across another friend of mine who was also a pastor in the Midwest. And all these guys are posting because they're already up. You know, they're a couple couple, uh, hours ahead of us than we are on the West Coast. And so he said, I couldn't sleep at all tonight. Like, I, I think I'm just so excited to preach the Word of God in the morning. I thought, that's cool. I'm, I'm also excited to preach the Word of God. I'm a little reluctant, but also excited. Because the Word of God is, is the best news that we have. When God is seen for who he is, he's irresistible. And I can't wait to see what the Word of God has to say about the character of God to make him more irresistible to all of us. So the third thing... And I, I turned off Facebook, and I thought, okay, i got to at least try to get a few more hours of sleep or something. But I couldn't. So then I switched over to YouTube. And in my, my YouTube feed, there was a live sermon being, being streamed from a pastor, uh, Greg Laurie, actually, Horizon, I think it was Horizon Ministries or something. And the name of his sermon that he was streaming live when I turned it on was Better Together. I thought, what are the odds? How about that? And he was preaching out of um, Acts, specifically Acts chapter 2. He was talking about the early church and how they had all things in common and how they shared all things. And, and he went on into the following chapters, and he talked about the way that the early church um, grew and spread. And I didn't watch the whole thing. I didn't have time because the sun was coming up and I had stuff to do. But... This is what happened in the early church in Acts, and this is what started me thinking about what I was talking about this morning and how providential it was that God brought these passages to my mind. At the beginning of Acts, Jesus gives this command, and he says that the church is to bring the good news, go make disciples, and that the church should spread from Jerusalem to Judea, into Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's this progression that he says is going to happen. And when we encounter the church in early Acts, everything seems great, except one thing's not happening. The church is not spreading anywhere. It's still just in Jerusalem. And it seems nice. It seems great, in fact. Everyone's sharing everything. Everything is in common. Um, everyone's happy. But the church hasn't spread. And that's what Jesus said was going to happen. So what precipitated the spread. Well, here's what precipitated the spread, is a man named Saul. And Saul showed up, and what's written, what Luke writes in Acts is that a great 
wave of persecution came over the church. And when that happened, the church scattered. And guess where the church scattered? The church scattered from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and into the ends of the earth. That's what it took for the church to to spread. That there was this body of believers that was doing seemingly all the right things, but was not accomplishing what Jesus had for the body to accomplish. And so I just started thinking. As we talk about as we talk about the body, and we talk about everybody's responsibility and how the different parts work together, what happens when discomfort enters into that equation? Sometimes part of being a part of the body and part of being in regular fellowship with other people is to point out when something isn't going completely right. Maybe even to point out when somebody is more comfortable than they should be. And I think that's what happened in the early church in Acts. And I think that that's what happens when, if, if I'm honest, that's what happens when, when I talk to a lot of my good Christian friends is that we don't beat around the bush with each other. We're, we're pretty open and honest about, hey, you know what, this is great, but here's an area where maybe you're a little too comfortable. Maybe you're not using your gifts to your full potential. Maybe there's something else for God to do here. And maybe you just need to be willing to follow God's leading and do it. So when we talk about doing the best work, what is it that God has for us to do? What is it that God has for you to do? I would say that if you don't know what God has for you to do, that that's probably, um, you know, that, that's pretty typical. If you don't we, don't, we don't all know. But if you have nobody else to ask, that's a problem. Um, if you don't know what to do and you don't have anybody around you that you can have an honest enough conversation to say, okay, I feel this discontent, but I don't know why. Or maybe I feel too much content. <laughs> and if, if there's nobody around you to point that out, then maybe you're living in an echo chamber. Because we all tend to do that from time to time. We surround ourselves with people that think the same way that we do, that have the same, you know, a similar outlook on life, maybe the same political party, the same faith life. We live in an echo chamber where we don't always, we don't always have a lot of outside influence. Um, and that's a problem because that is not a functioning body. That's like the whole body being an ear, right? Or a whole body being the eye. That's what Paul specifically says. Where would, you know, the whole body cannot be just an eye. Where would the hearing be? There's all these things that aren't being accomplished. And so I think that that's the, that gets at the heart of this, the next part of this passage. I think that there is a threefold failure when the right person is not doing the job. So we talked about the most people, we talked about the work that those people do, But what happens when the right person is not doing the right job? And I think that there's three things that happen. The first thing is that somebody ends up doing it. And that person usually gets frustrated. Because that person may not be the best person for the job. That person just knows this job needs to get done. And that person has a good heart. And that person wants to see it get done. And so they step up and do it. But it's frustrating for them. That's not how it's supposed to be. The second thing is that the job doesn't get done as well as it could be done. 
if the right person was doing it. And the third thing is that the person who should be doing the job is being deprived of the opportunity to do the job. That there's somebody out there that God created to do that thing. And because that thing is getting done and there's no need, that person is sitting idly by and their, and their gifts are not being used. And when we sit by and we allow that to happen and we don't recognize it and we don't point it out when we see it, that person is deprived and the whole body is deprived. The body is not acting as efficiently as it could. We're not doing what God put us on earth to do. So here we go with the tough part. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor. It's actually, it's Dan Frank over at uh, Grace Church around the corner there. He and I worked together for many years, and we're still friends. And uh, although I wouldn't, uh, don't tell him I said that. But he has, he has this thing that he says to his congregation before he says something difficult. And what he says is, smile at me. And so what I want to say to you is, smile at me. Because sometimes when we're confronted or asked to change something about our behavior, we look for a reason to point the finger back on the person who's doing the confronting. When we're asked or told to step up in a specific area, we become skeptical and look for ulterior motives. Or, if you're really devious, you look for hypocrisy and you try to point that out in the person that's pointing something out to you, and then it makes it seem like you can ignore what they're saying. So smile at me. Last week, um, Chris Rhodes was preaching, and he mentioned um, the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He shared a quote from Spurgeon. And Spurgeon is a, a favorite old dead guy preacher for a lot of us, and many of you probably recognize his name. Very wise fellow. But this is something that he said in his commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And before I read his quote, I want to tell you where some of the discontent started to come into my life when I started preaching this sermon to myself over a decade ago. As I started asking this question, what if everybody else did exactly what I do? What would the church look like? And I'm not just talking about this church, this local body. I mean Christianity. What if every Christian in Reno, what if every Christian in the United States lived their Christian life exactly as I do? What would happen what would the church look like? Smile at me. So this is what Spurgeon says. Oh, by the way, I have one more point of clarification because he uses some terms. Um, one of the terms he uses is drone, and he does not mean drone like we understand drone today because this was hundreds of years ago. Um, in his context, a drone is a male honeybee. I looked this up so I could understand it myself and so I could make it clear. So a drone is a male honeybee. Unlike the female worker bees, drones do not have stingers. They gather neither nectar nor pollen and are unable to feed without assistance from worker bees. So basically useless. Just, there you go. So here's what Spurgeon says. Smile at me. Drone, bee, or wasp. I want every member of this church to be a worker. We do not want any drones. If there are any of you who want to eat and drink and do no Christian work, there are plenty of places elsewhere where there are empty pews in abundance. Go and fill them, for we do not want you here. 
Every Christian is either a bee or a wasp. The most quarrelsome people, the wasps, are the most useless. Those who are most happy and peaceable, the bees, are generally those who are doing the most for Christ. Don't hear this as a guilt trip, by the way. Um, There are seasons of life that make service difficult and nearly impossible. But there are not seasons of life that excuse idleness completely. There's always something for us to do. I believe that as we teach the whole word of God, that inactivity is something that we must lovingly confront. It would be unloving to ignore this part of the body of Christ that, that, that Paul points out, to say that there are parts of the body that are inactive and that that's a problem. And for us to just glance over that like it's not a problem in the 21st century church would be dishonest. So we can't do that. So what if everybody did exactly what I do? When I asked myself that question, I, I didn't then and I don't lo- now love the answer. But let me make it a little bit more specific. What if every Christian did exactly what I do? What if every Christian pursued community like I do? What if every Christian was as dedicated to their personal spiritual growth as I am? What if every Christian was as involved in their local church as I am? What if everyone used their God-given gifts like I do? What if every Christian served and engaged the world around them like I do? What if everyone shared the good news of the gospel as passionately as I do? Would the world around us form a more accurate picture of who God really is? And if I'm honest, the answer is a resounding no. The world around us would not know God because I don't do those things well. And all of us, I think, in whatever state we find ourselves, would be honest to say that we could get better at all of those things. And by God's grace, we do. And by God's grace, there are a lot of great things happening. But if we're honest and we said, what if everybody engaged those things at the same level as I do? I don't think the church would exactly be thriving. One of the huge parts of our life here at Covenant, and one of the big discussion points for our session meetings and um, the ministry team meetings that we've had over the several last several months and year, have had to do with how do we engage our core values in a more tangible way? What are some of the things that we can take a look at and do a better job at? And one thing kept coming up again and again and again, and that's small groups. Like Jay mentioned, that is, we're pushing people to be involved in small groups, unashamedly. We are pushing people to be involved in small groups, and here's why. When we look at the core values of our church, where every person matters, where we're focused on the community around us, we're teaching the word of God as a priority, and the answers to all those questions, those are addressed in small groups. Those have been addressed for myself and for my wife and our family in small groups. Those, I mean, we have, we're blessed with a very, very loving pastor here in this church. Amen? Amen. But even the best, most loving pastor 
cannot care for hundreds of people on their own. There are things that slip through the cracks, especially when we hide from him, especially when we don't open up about what's going on, especially when we fade away into the background, especially when there's things going on that he never gets a chance to hear about and lovingly address. But that's where, for, for my family and for countless other families that I know here in this room and, and beyond, that's where small groups step in. Our, our small group that we've been a part of, we've, we've actually been a part of the same group um, for several churches. <laughs> we've, we've had the same, same group of friends, and we've, we all kind of ended up here at this church most recently. But we've been through the loss of jobs. Uh, we've been through uh, marital issues. We've been through job issues. We've been through moving. Man, I can't tell you how many people in our small groups we've helped move. If you need help moving, get into a small group. <laughs> There are countless discussions that we've had, some of which have been very uncomfortable because we love each other, because we know each other well enough to know when something doesn't look right, something that the average person wouldn't know because we're really good at hiding it. There have been countless times when people in our small group have stepped in to help us with, with our kids where we've even, you know, where we've done missions as, as a small group. There's, there's all kinds of things that have happened together that only happen because we intentionalize them. And that's why we're encouraging people to get into a small group. This is a way, a primary way, I would say, that the church in the 21st century becomes more active, that the body does what the body is supposed to do. If you don't know what your part of the body is supposed to do, and you're surrounded by people who know you really well, they'll tell you. Even if you don't ask, they'll, they'll tell you. You might not even want them to say anything, but they'll, they'll say it because they love you. A couple of weeks ago, we had a dinner at my house because we had asked for anybody who was interested in, in uh, leading or facilitating a small group, and several got personally invited to say, listen, we see you as a leader in this church. We see you as somebody who's moving this mission forward, and a primary way that we're going to do that is by actively engaging and loving small groups of people. Would you please, would you please lead one? And people stepped up in a big way out in the, out in the narthex, as Presbyterians call it, the foyer for the rest of us. There are all these sign-up sheets, and there's like more than a dozen small groups that have popped up. Some were already in existence, and some are just starting now. And some meet uh, different days of the week, different times for different uh, affinity groups, whatever. But there is a group that would love to have you join. And for your spiritual maturity sake, for the sake of furthering the church and the gospel, I will tell you, and believe me, I am not telling you to do something that I don't do myself. I think this is a huge deal, and I've been challenged in big ways, and I think if you're not part of a small group, you should be. You should, you should talk to somebody. And there's a few different things. You'll hear more about that from the different, different groups and what they're studying and how they're doing it. But the bottom line is, whatever you're studying, whatever it is that's drawing, you know, that, that, that ultimately, hopefully, everybody's studying something that's going to, you know, be positive and direct people to God. But beyond that... The community is the big part. Uh, we are not meant to live on our own. 
Just because you say you're not a part of a body doesn't mean you're any less a part of the body. Just because somebody told you that they don't want you in the body, well, I won't say what I would say to that person, but that person is wrong. (laughs) You belong in the body, and you have been given gifts that are unique. God put you on this earth to do something that is unique. God has people for you to reach that nobody else can reach except for you. That is, that is exactly what we're hoping will, will be awoken as we engage more people in small groups. So this is not just a, a casual announcement, hey, it's a group, it's a good idea, it's a nice thing, it's kind of what churches do. No, there's a reason behind this. Because as a church, we value every person. There are individual persons that need to be loved by you. We value focusing on the community, living in community, and serving the people around us. You're a vital part of that. And we value the word of God and teaching the word of God, and this is a great place for that to happen. So as I close, I want you to remember that we are not blind men groping around trying to discern whatever we can figure about figure out about who God is, because God speaks. And he speaks through you, and he speaks through me. He speaks through the community and the people that we surround ourselves with. The most loving thing that anybody can do is to introduce you into the, to the true character of who God is, because when God is seen for who he really is, he's irresistible. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the things that for the things that you say in um, unexpected and sometimes unwanted ways. God, we believe that, that what you want for us is what's best for us. That your desire is for your church to be a fully functioning body. We thank you and we praise you so much for the wonderful gifts that are represented in this church, for the people that do amazing things for your kingdom. We pray that you would continue to strengthen those people, that you would encourage them that you would encourage all of us to become more active parts of your body. And God, we thank you and we praise you for all that you're doing in our lives. We ask it now for your son's sake. Amen.